Welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, once again, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Pauline Kael Center for the Study of Film and Society here on the beautiful Hubel campus. The re-excavation of famed director Cecil B. DeMille's gigantic sets for the 1923 version of the Ten Commandments, buried in the dunes of the central California coast, has us talking about the relationship between archaeology and film. Do films about Egypt or the Bible reflect their sources as then understood, or do they just ref reflect the prejudices of the filmmakers? What are our expectations for films about the past, and especially the Bible? And what about films about archaeology and archaeologists? Could a movie that shows the mind-numbing, back-breaking tedium of real archaeology and painstaking scientific analyses put viewers in the seats? And what are the pressures to create narratives and tell ripping yarns for archaeologists and filmmakers? Is this something they paradoxically have in common? All we can say is, Mr. DeMille, we're ready for our close-up. Should we do a lightning round? Of course. Sure. Okay. Um, apropos, but not too, uh, you know, not too apropos. Um, what's, what's your favorite holiday movie? Any holiday and any movie really. Mm, okay. Um, I just can't think of the name of it. <laughs> um, well, for my entire childhood up through high school, every Thanksgiving, I would watch March of the Wooden Soldiers yeah. with a friend of mine. And uh, that was that was a very favorite thing to do. Nice, nice. That's interesting. My favorite movie for the last many years has been Love Actually for for Christmas. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. that's a good one. But if you had asked me um, what my favorite movie is for for Jewish holidays, I might have said something else. What would you uh, say? It would we, it, the the question was addressed to any holiday? Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, well, Alex, you answer for what's your favorite? The tradition of our people is well, is the um, annual Thanksgiving uh, viewing of Footloose. Oh, <laughs> um, because Thanksgiving is the holiday of of renewal, coming to a a new land and being thankful and overcoming. Uh, adversity, and this is exactly what Ren does when he comes in um, <laughs> to that small town in Colorado, and it's it's really a vast metaphor in a way, with with dancing. 
you realize nothing in the movie is actually tied to Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't the question. That's true. Okay. Um, okay. So okay. now your Jewish holiday movie. Yeah. So my Jewish, I mean, and this is the lead into what we're going to talk about is the 10 commandments for Passover because uh, all through my childhood, I think they still do um, channel seven that is ABC uh, for people who are not in the New York area, uh, shows it, um, the 1956 uh, Cecil B. DeMille version. Um, and I know it practically by heart, line for line. Wow. Yeah, well, parts of it. Well, like that's it's a good that's a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because we're, we're, you know, the the angle is uh, is the the recent re-excavation of the part of the ginormous set for the 1923 version of the Ten Commandments that was filmed in uh, Guadalupe, California, on the central uh, on the central coast, just north of Vandenberg Air Force Base, <laughs> where Cecil B. DeMille built these literally Titanic Egyptian sets with buildings and avenues and sculptures and whatnot. And, um, and then it, it was allowed to fall uh, to be reclaimed by the dunes <clears throat> and archeologists have now um, again, re-excavated part of this, uh, of this, uh, this set for a movie actually that uh, people don't, people don't watch. Have either of you ever seen the 1923 version? I have no. not. I uh, watched a clip of it, or maybe it was the the trailer for it, just this morning in preparation for this podcast. But no, I have not seen it. It's um, it's pretty freaky, and uh, it's it's a silent movie or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't want to show off my superior knowledge of <laughs> these movies. But- Oh, go I ahead. Did, Why don't you? I did at one point teach a teach a class on it uh, on the subject, but uh, it, the the movie, suffice it to say, uh, is very different from the 1956 version in in certain regards. But uh, I guess my question then becomes, um, what makes a good biblical movie? Well, hold it. Can wait, we wait? Wait, wait. Yeah, can we? Um... Oh, you want to actually talk about the stuff? Well, well... Well, this the, article I found realia? much yeah. more much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> much more interesting. Listener, and pay I, attention. <laughs> and I want to compliment the chef on selecting this fine uh, this fine feast of the imagination because th- there was a lot going on in here, and yeah. and I think it deserves some attention before we, you know, sort of open the lens a bit. <laughs> Attention must be paid. I really agree. There's a lot to say just about. Okay. Well, what struck you you guys about this? Well, firstly, uh, Cecil B. DeMille had made a, an agreement with, what was it? The uh, Union Sugar Company who owned, these, who owned these lands that he would return it to its natural state. Okay. I and then it. after, you know, making this colossal epic movie with these humongous, undoubtedly art deco sets that are probably were just gorgeous as artifacts themselves, not as anything Egyptian. <clears throat> he realized that he didn't have the interest, capacity, money, or anything else. <laughs> and he buried everything. Right. And I think that the most interesting thing for me was this is the Achatatan, 
This is Amarna. Yeah, yeah. This is what happened to Amarna is nice. that, you know, there was no interest, energy, anything after the death of um, Akhenaten. And so they packed up the capital city and moved it back to uh, Memphis, I guess, and just let Akhenaten or Amarna um, sort of relapse into the, into the dunes. And yeah. that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. Yeah. And it became forgotten, just like Akhetaten became forgotten. Right. Until it was revisited by archaeologists on the trail of the letters, et cetera. But still. And I thought, wow, Clou la change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is so meta, right? So it's mm -hmm. a movie about, an, uh, well, about antiquity. And now the movie itself is being excavated. And then the guys who first found it are two filmmakers and you know what they did? They made a documentary about excavating it. So it's like meta meta. It is exactly. And the, the, uh, the other thing that I want to point out, one of the early archeologists that was invited or ended up participating was a guy named none other than John Parker. One of the yeah. essential characters out of Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> <laughs> I just found this whole thing so absolutely engaging and enjoyable. You cannot even begin to imagine. <laughs> Laugh while you can, monkey boy. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art in a hermeneutic circle. Right. And exactly. I just can't wait until you bring up Walter Benjamin. That will sort of complete the circle. <laughs> he was a big fan of this movie, actually. <laughs> yeah. If you look at his uh, his Netflix uh, recommendations, that was um well then I, I certainly commend you and and uh, also the listener. You should go you should go watch this movie because it's it's kind of freaky and it's it's not exactly what you would expect because there are two there are two parallel stories. Only half of the movie is actually about um, about ancient Egypt, set yeah. in ancient Egypt. Half of it is set in sort of early twentieth century San Francisco, and it's the it's a morality tale of two brothers, a good one and a bad one. Who the fuck? And and it's a and it's a, a critique, I guess, not of not of late capitalism, but of you know, sort of gilded era, bandit era capitalism. And uh, and there's a saintly gray-haired mother involved um, mm. and a femme fatale. And it's it's a, it's interesting. <laughs> it's not my favorite part, but everybody remembers the Egyptian part, which yeah, is well, huge is called and vast. The Ten Commandments. So, right. yeah. Now, but it's a movie about, it's a movie about morality. Is it scored not... by someone famous? The score? Yeah, score? because wouldn't the score be very important to the film, to a to a silent film? On an yeah, I don't know who I don't know who scored yeah. it. I was thinking that the score that that in the little clip that I saw, the score is fantastic as you would expect it to be, but I didn't pay attention to who. Um, well, it's a real contrast with with the, the version that we're familiar with. Right. Well, oh, this was what I was going to ask. Does the plot of this extend all the way, I assume it does, to Moses getting the Ten Commandments? I believe so, yeah. Because otherwise he couldn't have called it the Ten Commandments. Yeah, the famous, the, the famous scene is crossing the Red Sea, and where apparently DeMille employed most of the Orthodox Jewish community of Los Angeles 
for their beards and otherwise, you know, sort of Semitic looks and, and Ooh. literally toss them into the Pacific ocean and, and film them, you know, climbing, climbing out of the Red Sea. What did he convince them? It was a mikvah or something? No, no, I think, uh, I think they knew what, uh, what they were getting into. And there was a whole <laughs> town that was created uh, to, to go along with, with this movie. Um, it's a whole mean like the film the film the, the film you know the film community that was another nice little detail from from the article that we read that it was the middle of prohibition and uh they would have to take they had 200 camels for the movie and they would take the camels into town to go to speakeasies um right yeah that sounds like right out of something that you know the gezer boys would have done in the in the, <laughs> the mid 60s right that's right <laughs> Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot more archaeology of film sets that that goes on that we're we're not as aware of as we as we should be. No, I think it's a very interesting thing because, and especially because now this movie is literally a um, hundred years old, so that's legitimately you know historical archaeology. Um, well, it is it is the archaeology of of film, and and. Right. That's a kind of an interesting thing. Um, it also made me think that when Lawrence of Arabia was filmed, which I think was like 60, I, I don't know. I want to say 62, 61, 62, I think. Yeah. Um, what was that? David Lean? Yeah. He had to agree with the, it was filmed in Morocco and Jordan. And the, and the dune scenes were in Morocco and he had to agree to, keep it pristine and clean uh-huh and and they did every apparently after every day of filming they would rake oh wow the whole area that they filmed and made sure that there was no you know rubbish and etc um and that was a serious thing whereas I do find it a little interesting that the Union Sugar Company was aware enough to put that clause in. That, right. he, that he had to, you know, make it pristine, but then didn't, didn't you know, follow up on it. Right, right. Uh, and I wonder true. why that was, because he left a lot of crap there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's he really did. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. So, and, and as we know, sugar companies are notorious well, in their, in the, their It's interesting, like they went out of their way to put this clause in. Right. And mm-hmm. then didn't check it at all. Like, I'm wondering where the disconnect was. Right, right, right. right. That's a good question. And and DeMille, from the little quotes that I've read, never really had any intention of of cleaning it up. Um, it didn't sound yeah. Yeah, he said something like, um, if a thousand years from now, archaeologists happen to dig between beneath the sands, I hope they won't rush into print with amazing news of Egyptian civilization extending all the way to North America. Right. And that, of course, made me think of Cyrus Gordon again. Like, <laughs> if this had happened and Cyrus Gordon had come upon it, he would be like, oh, of course. Right. Exactly. This is where the Olmecs came from. Right. Right. But you know what else interested me? Because, again, I saw this little clip. Um, So um, the temple in the building of the temple scene with all the laborers um, running and pulling the big blocks, um, the temple is exactly um, like Abu Simbel which um, makes sense because it's a Ramses II temple. And if Ramses II is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, um, but the fact that Cecil B. DeMille knew enough to imitate an actual, an actual temple. So right. I like that. 
I also yeah. happened to be teaching Abu Simbel in class yesterday. So wow, yeah. Well, in the for the 1956 movie, um, DeMille employed a, a team of researchers, and there's actually a book that they produced. And there are all sorts of consultants like John Wilson of the Oriental Institute. I was about to say, Chicago is deeply involved. Yeah, in and and they aimed for the the maximum uh, historical accuracy that they that they could, and um, you know, which brings me back to my to my question: Does accuracy matter? But I, I have to say that I, I you know, in, in thinking about this, I think the Union Sugar Company kind of missed. Missed a chance to create a, a tourist attraction, sure. mm -hmm. um, because if you if you go to um, Tunisia today, mm. one of one of the the desert attractions is the set where they filmed uh, Star Wars, and right? Luke Skywalker's house, underground house, um, and all that nonsense is is a place where where <clears throat> people go to and. And and if you look on the the interwebs, there are millions of websites that talk about shooting locations of every of every imaginable film. Right, and and actually, when you go to Wadi Rum, they'll they take you to the specific rocks in which parts of Martian were. Oh, um, yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that. That right. in Wadi Ram, huh. and you can also, uh, when you're in the that neighborhood in Jordan, you can go and see the uh, the the steam engine that um, Colonel Lawrence and his band actually blew up, which is still lying there on its side, right? Which was then imitated in a movie, you know, forty years later, uh, fifty years later, and so you know, talk about meta meta repetitions and uh, recursivity and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's the word of the day. Do do people know that um, in the first or the third Indiana Jones movie that it was filmed in Petra? Do people know that that's an actual archaeological site? Although not that, I mean, obviously archaeologists know, but do audiences know? I don't know I what audiences film buffs know. probably know. Mm -hmm. they, you know, right? They delve into these kinds of things in elaborate detail right right because that's another meta thing it's archaeology but it's not the archaeology it was pretending to be and of course it's interesting to think we've gone on and on about how archaeology has become so scientific and with all of that science all of the glamour of archaeology is removed totally because totally. it's, it's a complete de-emphasis on excavation and massive excavation and it's a complete e emphasis on you know sort of micro archaeology of picking up little tiny little bits and pieces of things and then taking them back to the lab and analyzing the hell out of them right uh, so right. that'll work until of course you know someone begins to replicate you know hittite soldiers cloning hittite soldiers and things like that <laughs> this is this is the lab where i where where somebody used a microscope to determine that cotton was actually present in the neolithic right <laughs> there'll be like a big <laughs> blue plaque up on the on the wall it'll be part of the tour that they give prospective students on <laughs> campus or or right. something 
I mean, but th that's a really good point, though, about the sort of missing the excitement of of archaeology with the microarchaeology, because that's this is what these movies do, these big biblical epics, not just the excitement of archaeology, but in those epics, you're allowed to visualize a big overblown what the ancient world might have looked like, which you're not right. getting when you're analyzing if cotton came from here or there. Right. But archaeologists don't seem to be too... Um by and large too thrilled about any of these movies or right. and certainly not about the the movies about archaeology right well they're generally pretty impoverished as far as far as i'm concerned yeah impoverished in in archaeological terms or in um filmic um cinematic dramatic yeah. terms yeah as films they're schlocky mm -hmm. and they fall into the sandals and sword or you yeah. know they just i i and as archaeologists, you always find them underwhelming. And right. as filmgoers, because the plot is so ultimately derivative of the Bible, it becomes sort of gloppy and nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, a, yeah. Although there was two recent ones, The Dig from last year or two years ago. About, oh, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, okay. About Sutton Who. Um, which was actually a very good movie, but now there's a whole hullabaloo. There's a movie over a, a movie about finding the Richard the Third. Hullabaloo. Yeah, yeah, is that okay to say? <laughs> no, it's good. It's the first time in this uh, in in all these episodes of the word hullabaloo has appeared. Okay, well then let me repeat it. I believe there's a whole hullabaloo right now. <laughs> I'm gonna write it down. There's there's a movie made about the finding of. Uh, the the burial of Richard III in a parking lot in un, under a parking lot in England, and apparently um, the the archaeologists are portrayed as awful and misogynistic and not interested in the amateurs' good research. And um, so it's another instance of archaeology is getting the short end of the stick in film, um, a very current film. Uh, but that's not exactly what we're talking about. But well, but but maybe maybe it should be. Um... How how the process of archaeology is represented in film, yeah. Because for the most part, it's you know we he, he who shall not be named, <laughs> Professor Jones, right? <laughs> um, you know he. he I, I think we should uh, we should give all thanks to him for keeping this kind of mythical vision of archaeology alive even though professionals like to wag their fingers and all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, he, he because, if, because if the real mind-numbing tedium, back-breaking boredom of archaeology right. were depicted, right. um, people would um, <laughs> would leave the theater in droves. Right. And, and the They'd never even walk into the theater because they'd right. see the trailer and they would already be... Right. Right. Very, very true. But so no, we we have him to thank for um, you know, for all our undergraduates coming into archaeology one hundred and one classes, right? Which I have no problem with. Could a could a movie be made that that fairly depicted the process of archaeology, or would just you know with, with proper editing, so you compress you know six weeks or six years into you know ninety minutes? I don't think we I don't think we can judge that. I think we're too jaded and cynical to right. accurately whoa, whoa, judge whoa. that. <laughs> speak, for, speak for yourself. No, I think I can speak for Precious all of us. driven snow I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I just don't think we would ever be able to give it a fair shake. It's I mean, I, I think one of the best depictions of archaeology, what, but this is because I like the show, was uh, was Jean-Luc Picard as an archaeologist in space. Yeah, um, that, that was fair. That was a fair depiction, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was a fair depiction, <laughs> but I, I felt it was a, I felt it was a, an, a series of ethical and moral, moral choices were made. Right. Com- compacting, compacted into a, you know, 46 minute episode or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's easier to satirize archaeologists. Um, and here, you know, we were talking about Don Verdeen. Right. Well, that, and that's a brilliant movie. Which is just a lot of, a lot of fun. And um, which, you know, kind of depicts the some of the pressures, at least in biblical archaeology. And not that we know anybody who succumbs to these kinds of pressures to find biblical time. Oh, no, we don't know anyone like that. But um, (laughs) and that's, of course, part of the thing when you think about it in this in our particular world. One of the reasons why I think I I'll speak just for myself. (laughs) I know I'm speaking for all of us is is because a lot of biblical archaeology is taking itself so seriously. And and the practitioners so desperately want to be filmed and want to be part of the you know, public discourse and, you know, public intellectuals and everything else mm-hmm. that it's ultimately very, for me, very deflating mm-hmm. um, and, you know, very. Right. And and we've talked, I guess, about all a, a variety of, of documentary or pseudo documentary and edutainment series, which depicts archaeology. Right. which where where in the the general lack of drama is compensated for or not by fabulous graphics computer animation and drone photography and this kind of stuff but it doesn't really depict the mind numbing backbreaking boredom of of the day-to-day process right and the other thing of course is is what we know is that mo- the majority of the work is done after the excavation Right. right. And the majority of the exciting stuff intellectually is all after the excavation. Right. So, you know, the excavation is one part of a huge long process. That's true too. That's true. But the excavation from the point of view of field archaeologists is actually the fun part, but it's well, not necessarily exciting. It's full of camaraderie and exactly. and but it's not, you know, finding gold and silver. Right, but it's fun for very different reasons than finding of the stuff. And it's exactly what you said. And this is often what, when people ask me, what's the most exciting thing you found? Or you, it's so, and it's like, yeah, no, it's all about the camaraderie. It's yeah. all about the camaraderie and it's all about, um, you know, the uh, life, the lifestyle in the field and the people and those kinds of things. Because- which, which is not unlike making a film. Correct. It, or it's- summer camp. Right. right. <laughs> All of which are kind of different, different <laughs> genres along, you know, a, a, a funding gradient. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think you could probably make a very, very interesting, exciting movie about um, 19th century archaeology. A real yeah. age of discovery and... Um, shenanigans and you know 
uh, adventure and moral you know questions with somebody like Heinrich Schliemann oh that's and, good and his wife is the star or uh or Layard in in uh, in Mesopotamia dis- discovering Mesopotamian civilization for the first time this, right. this kind of thing you do go though get into the um sort of thorny issue of orientalist depictions and well sure but you could you could play it a, a number of different ways you you yeah. could if you want to take take these issues seriously you'd have a very complex moral you know depiction of the the person and his times and the other people around him and so on that's true that's true um, yeah all right. All I need is what two hundred million dollars, two hundred fifty. Just maybe Netflix will get behind this right away. Yeah, the way they got behind our uh, our proposal for a series to send us around. That's right. In the footsteps of Graham Hancock. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, one one thing that comes to mind with all this, two things that come to mind. So, so um, sort of the height of. Um, of the career of Zai Hawass back before the Egyptian revolution, when he was getting his own TV show, which was not without its own controversy, but he is a figure who is a real archeologist who is not afraid to wear the Indiana Jones hat, who took it as his own kind of symbol. And um, he was interesting to watch, right? So, but this is a documentary kind of thing. This is um, trying to make archeology span more exciting, trying to make real archeology span more exciting, which is, I guess we're getting off on a tangent from, from biblical epics, which is where we started this conversation. Well, I, I like, I like biblical epics. Um, I just think that archeologists and archeology span are really boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, present company accepted. Um, Um, Well, what's your favorite biblical epic? Yeah. Why do you like biblical epics? Well, I like them because they're they're very they're very much keyed to um, periods and places in which they were made and consumed. So, you know, Gilded Age or you know post Gilded Age Ten Commandments with with a, a a real critique of American robber the the American robber class mm-hmm. juxtaposed. Uh, is completely different from the version that the mill made 30 little over 30 years later, which is a pure biblical mid century American imperial projection of strength kind of, uh, and confidence and, and faith in God kind of, kind of film. And it's also, you know, it's a, it's a rip roaring yarn, the 1956 10 commandments. Right. so, you know, and if you look at all the different biblical movies, they're all very p- particular in that way. And uh, the Italian ones are very different from the American ones. And uh, I just find that very interesting from a social history point of view. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> well, that's certainly keeping things light. And funny. Yeah, seriously, Alex. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, I really like, I really like big, okay? Like, 
like, <laughs> you know, the whole Ten Commandments in 1956, it's big. It doesn't get bigger than the Egyptian court, New Kingdom court, right? And um, beautiful women with hairstyles coming straight out of the Egyptian reliefs. And um, but then in terms of big, I like the one scene from Ben-Hur that I've seen about a million times and I haven't seen the rest of the movie, which is the chariot race. It also doesn't get bigger than that. So I think big is, well, I think big is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ben-Hur is not, you know, it's I, sort of, I know it's not in the Bible. I know. But hold it. Wait, what? <laughs> 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 but yeah, well, but now you could do the, all that in comp in the computer. And that's such well, a shame. And that's a whole other thing. But before we get on to that, let me just. Let me just take a little uh, brief excursus into sort of fantasy slash science fiction movies, which I think drew on notions of the ancient world. Okay. And here I'm thinking of a of an old favorite movie of mine called Sharad of Atlantis, which, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> had these. It was an underwater city, right? It all takes place underwater, um, and. Part of it was like these temple scenes that were clearly built on, you know, notions of what Mesopotamian religion was like or something like that. And I think there's a whole genre of those kinds of films um, about, you know, science fiction, fantasy worlds built on antiquity. Um, well, and those I, those I enjoy much more than Bible movies because Bible movies. To me well, you are know how they're going to turn out. <laughs> right. You, A, you know how they're going to turn out. B, if they were made up until quite recently and now again recently, they all have some kind of message in them that's right. all very clear because of what it's based on. And um, and they all try to conform themselves to some form, and here you have to give me a lot of latitude, some form of a perceived reality, whether it's a rhetorical reality or an, an ancient reality or a biblical reality, but they're all trying to put forward a version of the biblical world that they, that somebody, whether it's the director or the producer, somebody believes in. Whereas these fantasy science fiction movies are just like, we got to think of some way out stuff. Oh, here's something, you know, here's like the, 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 the uh, royal tombs of Ur. Oh, let's let's weave that into, um, you know, into this thing. And that, to me, allows my imagination to roam more and to think about the past in sort of a less cluttered or moralistic way. That's interesting. Well, uh, apparently, the, the new um, Black Panther movie, which I didn't see, which has like a, some sort of underwater civilization, a lot of the visuals are derived from kind of Olmec ish mm. sort of uh designs and and motifs and and whatnot um you know all of which support some kind of narrative having to do with fish people um yeah. but i don't know I, you know did you see the noah movie from a few uh, years no, ago and i don't see no i didn't see it and people of course students always come up to me did you see Troy? Did you see the 100? Did you see Noah? Right, Did you right. see this? Did you see that? And I'll start watching them and I'll just literally go, no, I'm going to watch, you know, I'm going to watch seven. My, right. I'm going to either watch my form of junk or I'm going to watch good film. 
Right. Well, and and that's actually interesting because Noah, I thought was pretty awful. And the gods of Egypt, did you see the gods of Egypt a couple of years back? It was really awful. And, um, you know, well, that's my critique, but, uh, but it's the, the, these recent biblical epics have just not been good movies the way these older forties and fifties movies are. Well, that's a, that's a little, I don't know, <laughs> judgmental. Yes. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but in the world of aesthetics and film, you like what you like. Well, that's true. And I'm I wondering mean, if it has to do with the special effects as opposed to, I mean, I think it's also like the plotting and all this. As opposed to getting old. <laughs> and curmudgeonly. <laughs> Words that can never be applied to us. Oh, no. Um, well, the, the Noah movie was was very interesting because precisely because of the whole science fiction kind of thing. And it because it i don't want to no spoilers but there's uh, there's a whole series of like rock monsters mm, that, mm. that appear this is, and, this is the 2014 aronofsky movie yeah, yeah. and it's so wacky and I it's totally so out it. there and i i saw it described or maybe i did in something that it's it's a a midrash about noah but it's the midrashiest midrash that was ever midrashed and you know, and at a certain point, it's not really, it's not really <laughs> true to the source material. The source <laughs> material is only like, you know, three sentences to begin with, so you have to run with it, right? Whether you like it or whether you like it or not. Um, well, you're reminding to... me now that right there was a lot of write up about those rock monsters as as the Nephilim, the biblical Nephilim. Right, 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 right. Pre whatever giant things li lived on earth are right. you saying so, rock lobster or rock monster i'm i'm just rock, I just rock. wanted to get a b52's reference in there <laughs> no, that's the first b52's reference we've had i think we've had. yeah well it was it was nuts and but again i think it speaks to uh it speaks to the the perception of the audience that's a good that, point and and you can go to I don't know Christian Broadcast Network um, and find much sort of truer, so to speak, depictions of various biblical events, figures, uh, and like and so on. Mm -hmm. um, right, or or like you know children's versions like that. Um, but you know the 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 big studios are going or have gone for much bigger, wackier increasingly wacky kinds of uh kinds of depictions but um i don't know that's why i, I sort of like the the mid the stolid mid-century strong <laughs> strong silent type mm -hmm. embodied by charlton heston projecting right. and with, with a certain amount of uh verisimilitude as it was then understood <laughs> at least in terms of the setting so you know, right as it was understood, right? right. And so what you're getting is the replication of the white Christian world in America in the 1950s on film, to a certain extent. <laughs> except that uh, you know there were. Uh, we don't want to go into casting. The entire Egyptian army was Egyptian. Okay, that's right. as the. And they, what happens to the entire Egyptian army? Well, it's not exactly what happens. Exactly, to what, what, they, exactly they made, what happens to what, to what the West wants of the entire Egyptian army. 
Right. Oh, I mean, come on. Every film is a reflection of its zeitgeist and its times. Absolutely. And it's conspicuous. That's exactly what they want to do in order to get people into the theaters. So now film and TV is filled with dystopian, you know, dramas and dystopian movies because that's the zeitgeist of the times. And in the 50s, it was filled with all of this narishkeit because that was the zeitgeist of the times. And I I don't know if it it if it ever made great cinema. Well, that's... I don't know if the acting was any good or the writing was any good, but I also can't judge because I'm not predisposed to all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's something else that I was maybe not going to bring up, but I will. But when you do these re- re- reconstructions or, or you, you build these huge sets and then you reenact something, there's kind of a fine line and it doesn't matter that much with certain things. But like, you know, so you're hiring, like you said, Alex, you're hiring all the all the Orthodox Jews to play the extras. <laughs> How they, Orthodox could they be if they would get into schmatas and go into the ocean? And allow themselves to be filmed. Okay, so there's... Right, exactly. issues, right? It could have been that Orthodox. Right, but but you're getting all these Jews to play extras, let's just say. And then, you know, you're kind of... They're they're acting as slaves, right? And you're beating them with your whips. That's the scene I saw this this morning. And, uh, you know, there's this fine line between, between reenacting and actually doing. And I also think of it in terms of... I was reading a few weeks ago... For or something else. Um, at some point in the 90s, they reenacted a slave auction at Colonial Williamsburg, which made everybody really oh, uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I read that too. So, yes. so there's this really fine line. You're you're doing it so accurately for the sake of the film that are you doing it so accurately that you're actually doing it? You know, same thing with Holocaust films, I think in particular, right? So, so well, do you see my point? I'm not sure I'm explaining it, but um, well, it's. Well, just how tied it is to the time in which it's made. And the how time you, that it's, you can't separate out its sort of, you know, socio-political context. You it's can't, right. I can't. I can't. I, I'll just say that I can't. And I, when you bring up the Holocaust films, that's interesting because Holocaust archaeology, which is mm-hmm. being done, is is likewise very, very controversial with yeah. with with, you know, Jewish practitioners and observers on both sides of the fence as to whether you're desecrating a holy spot or whether you're, you know, explicating a past, a horrific past in a way that can only be done through the material culture and the archaeology. So all of these things cut in a lot of directions, but they are always completely and totally grounded in the in the context of their time. Right. I don't know. Well, I mean, I hope I hope you're right, because I when I see these Holocaust films, I sort of am picturing the, you know, do you really want to be reconstructing a concentration camp? What, you know, <laughs> you're making it so, so realistic that are you replaying what what yeah, one part of the audience is taking notes and the other part of the audience is is can't can't even comprehend it. Right. Right. So I don't know. There, there are issues with these things. That's. All right, so let me bring it around to something a little. We've taken a really dark turn, here, <laughs> yeah, which sorry. I completely accept the blame for. <laughs> but let me let me bring this around. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems I think with all of these films about antiquity <laughs> is that, especially biblical films, not necessarily films about you know ancient Rome, for instance, is that it's hard to get biblical stories into a good you know three act sequence mm-hmm. with some degree of resolution other than the expected. So how about this? How about someone, who would you want to see direct a film about the, the battle of, of Kadesh? 
<laughs> the Egyptians and the Hittites, because that does have a resolution. It has a geopolitical resolution that's very neat. They, they draw up a peace treaty. They make these, they put it on a piece of silver. They put it on the walls of Luxor. They put it in a, in a uh, cuneiform document. And, uh, you know, there's peace afterwards. So who would you want to see direct that? And would that make a good film? Well, hmm. who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? I mean, that's that's like any yeah. <laughs> military movie, right? Yeah, you could do it either way. Um, yeah. I that that's an interesting question. Who would direct it? I'm actually want to also hear who would star in it. I want to know who would play Muatali. Um, right. Yeah. Um, well, I would like to see Ridley Scott direct it. Oh. Well, yeah. In terms of does the past, and he does the future. Right. Okay. But it 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 reminds me though that there had been talk a few years ago, not the Battle of Kadesh, but the the Book of Maccabees. Oh right, was going to be turned into a movie, directed by and starring um, Mel Gibson. Oh yes, that would be perfect. Yeah. That, and I think that... I think that that was really missed opportunity. Oh totally, <laughs> in in that... many respects. Right. Um, that could that could bring me back into the movie theater. <laughs> um, I have to say, though, my you know, with with respect to the whole direct directorial um, yeah. thing, I don't know whether you all ever saw the Last Temptation of Christ, uh -huh, uh -huh. directed by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I did not see it for all. And the and that is a fabulous, fabulous movie. It's a little bit misguided in certain respects, <laughs> in my humble opinion. But um, <laughs> casting Harvey Keitel as Judas, right? <laughs> and uh, these scenes where where uh, Jesus is putting together his posse or his his gang are totally Scorsesean, right? And um, I think only Quentin Tarantino could could do justice to some. So is it essentially a 1980s American social drama? Uh, no, not really, except in that, uh, the, some, the, some of the casting choices, Willem Dafoe is, as, uh, Jesus, but the source material is from, is from the, uh, novel right. by Kazantzakis. Right. No, that it has I all these kind of ambiguous, maybe in terms of the ambiguity of it, mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus survives and he goes off and he has a life you think. And uh, all this living. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess, you know, there's a there's a, an 80s element of ambiguity there. Um, mm -hmm. Religious doubt and whatnot. Was, I mean, it's all about religious doubt, but. Right. Which you was find not out in the, the case with the with the well, with the 2004 passion of the Christ. That's the Mel Gibson. <laughs> right. Right. kind of turned it all back into it doesn't get more moralistic than that well or more literal or more literal what well, right. well, with it being an aramaic and all right 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 <laughs> yeah i'm looking at martin scorsese's you know filmography and it's like it's all 
American sociology of the 80s and 90s, well, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So I, I would have just imagined that I uh, now I now I'm interested. Maybe I'm gonna I'll check out the Last Temptation of Christ. Huh. It's it's a very interesting, very interesting movie, and it's very beautiful to look at also. But there are some you know you'll you'll see some scenes, some performances which are, you know, very very mean streets ish. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, well, right. Anytime Harvey Keitel is in any movie that isn't you know, on the streets of some American city, he always looks uncomfortable and out of place. Wasn't he in The Piano? And I I always thought that was a that New Zealand movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I always thought that was kind of strange casting. And he was, I thought he was a strange casting in The Duelists, which was, what's his name's first movie? Um, Yeah, he's a intense actor but very rooted i think in a certain place and time hmm. well to to change it back and bring it back to the physical archaeological one of the better um remakes of the story of of uh, slavery in egypt and and redemption um and moses is the prince of egypt okay which was a cartoon right and my kids grew up on that right at, at pesach Right, exactly. And when I ask my students um, in various contexts, you know, they have not seen the Ten Commandments, the 1956 version, and probably have never heard of the 1923 version, but they have all seen the Prince of Egypt. And that, of course, being a cartoon, didn't have a set. So (sighs) there's nothing to excavate. Right. But but there is um, actually, going back to what you were talking about, there's an important moral aspect to that. Yeah. that you know here's here's a depiction of what is supposed to be according to the source material a a horrific experience of of um slavery enslavement and repression and violence Mm -hmm. and exploitation which is the root metaphor for all of these kinds of concepts as we know them in in the west Mm -hmm. Um, Every group that has experienced slavery and then redemption uses biblical um, uh, biblical references, and um, and here it's in here it's a cartoon, and there's there's singing and it's a story of these brothers and and I don't know it just strikes me as deeply immoral because (laughs) because it treats it with um, with uh, it's frivolous. Okay. Okay. What so, about so suck on that? I I, I will. <laughs> what what about Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Dreamcoat? Yeah. Well, not my favorite either. Right. Do you feel that it's also frivolous, or is Joseph not equated equatable with slavery in Egypt? Although he's kind of the whole root of the whole mess. I think there's a difference. I think there's a difference in these kind of um the the construction and intention of these biblical narratives and right right but ultimately so right so ultimately we're all talking about different either um movies or genres of movies that we find frivolous (laughs) but they're right and we all have different ones that we regard as frivolous because of um because of our own personal 
aesthetic choices and right. what we think the movie sort of represents because we know it represents something. It's not just a, you know, it's not just a movie. Right, right. Hmm. Well, at this point, I'm getting more interested in excavating uh, old film locations than I am in actually excavating biblical sites. Yeah, well, it's historical archaeology. Yeah, it would right. be it would be it would be absolutely fascinating. I mean, this is almost apropos. So I've I've done some some work on you know the 19th century and the the workers who have participated in late 19th century archaeology and you know surveyed a village where they came from and so on. And uh, this is kind of you know same time frame, right? So so this is uh, basically how people thought about archaeology in the 19th century that were or early early sorry early 20th century that we're we're examining. It's um. It's it's not the history of the ancient past. It's the history of the recent past. It's yeah, the history of the reception of the ancient past. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's the history of the reception of the Bible. Right. Not the ancient past. Right. You're right. The Bible is the ancient past. Yeah. So it's, but this is this is how it cuts. We all see it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, you're right. So before we stop, I know we're going to stop soon, but. Do we have to talk about Jesus Christ Superstar? Mm. Right. That was filmed in um, the Bell Caves at. Um, oh, at Baker Vreen? At Baker Vreen, yeah. Really? Well, one of the scenes was. No idea. I have yeah. also never seen it. Um, a musical. Is that not, frivolous? Not my, not my favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't I mean, like the music? Didn't didn't own the album? No, no. <laughs> oh, that was very popular among my peer group. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I'd I'd be curious about uh, about what our listener <laughs> thinks of in terms of you know these films and and uh, and musicals. We encourage our listener to write in and let yeah. us know. Send yeah. us a send us a postcard or a you know right. a um, telegram. Do we have final thoughts? Don Verdeen, the best archaeology movie ever made. Yeah, that is a good movie. Uh, my final thought is that every generation gets the um, gets the biblical movies that it uh, it wants and deserves. Okay. Okay. You have a final thought? Um, I I don't know. I like Donny Osmond as Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, you have the last word there, that's for sure. Okay, then. Okay. Well, now I've got to drag the old Betamax out of the closet and get ready to take a trip across the eighth dimension. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Union Sugar Company, a division of Yoyodyne Propulsion Systems, Remember their slogan, the future begins tomorrow. And so, to get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, at gmail.com. Hit the little like button at the bottom of this page to show us that you're out there. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.